clubhouse. I'm Beth Kushnack. And I'm Caroline Daly. Welcome to Decorating the Set, from Hollywood to your home. For over 30 years, I've created settings for countless award-winning television series and feature films. As a set decorator, I'm a storyteller. My job is to compose visuals that both capture and enhance any story. Now, I want to help you capture and enhance your story. I'm on social media every day, and Beth's Instagram is a must-look for me. Over and over, I see fans asking her, how can I get the look in my own home inspired by something I've seen on screen? There's nothing I enjoy more than helping people create a space that allows them to best express themselves. Subscribing to Decorating the Set means you'll never have to tackle these projects alone. I'll be the decorator by your side. Hey, Beth, we are finally going to get to this long-awaited, much-teased episode talking about art. I cannot wait to discuss this with you because I know it is something close to your heart, and it's something that I feel like a lot of people have a lot of questions about. How are you doing today? Doing good. Here we are on our 12th podcast, and we're going to get a little bit more specific. We've done a lot of rooms and a lot of tips during COVID, and Now it's time to talk specifically about art, which is a major, major consideration of mine on the set. It's a character-defining moment, and it's actually something that requires some legal awareness. Tell us about that, Beth, because I know that that's something that you have kind of hinted at, that, that there's different things that you guys have to deal with when it comes to having things on the screen. So how do you approach art when you're going to be decorating a set? These days, lawyers and artists' rights societies and different clearance companies stand between me and what I am allowed to use as wall dressing on any set. So I have to be extremely careful for fear of not wanting to be thrown in clearance jail, as we call it. (laughs) What is clearance jail? Well, clearance jail is when you take a risk and you don't have legal clearance. So I certainly don't do that anymore. So what does it mean when a piece of art is actually cleared? It means that the artist signs off and allows us to use the piece on set. And uh, it satisfies the studio and the network. Interestingly enough, there have even been some issues with having to clear iconic wallpaper, some floor coverings. As we become more litigious in our society, I think it's going to be the job of the set decorator to have even more decorative items cleared. Who's in charge of that? Who, whose job is it to handle all that clearance? It's sort of a combo of jobs. It's my job to acquire the work that I want to use and or what's scripted. The show that I'm currently working on has some very specific photographs scripted. And then sometimes we have an in-house clearance person. Sometimes we go through a clearance company altogether. (laughs) It's usually the night before that were good to go, or in some cases told, nope, can't use it. Other than just like them deciding whether or not they want their work actually shown in a a television show or a movie, is there uh, money exchanging hands? Is there something more to it? Yes, there is usually a fee to the artist, and there's a requirement by the studio 
that they're basically giving over their rights, not just for a one-time air or a one-time use, but in perpetuity, ah, as they say. Nice. Then there are prop houses who are willing to sign off on certain works of art, whether they've acquired them from artists and have the artist's general clearance to use them, or whether they are real antique pieces and have been produced prior to 1924, because those things are automatic clearance. Hence my love of using an eclectic collection of artwork. It makes me think back to when you were saying that you go to like the little ceramic places and get the little ones that were left behind by little kiddos that maybe forgot their pieces of art and that you use them. That makes a lot of sense, Beth. You could do that more and more and not have to deal with clearance. I do dig up, especially in period pieces, certain wall hangings or carvings, macrames, things that may have been a part of some antique piece of furniture, maybe an antique door. It definitely helps me think outside the box in terms of what can be used as a wall piece. I mean, what does it really take? A piece of wire and two little screw eyes to turn something into a wall hanging. That is an, an excellent segue to what is art? What are we looking for when we're talking about hanging things on our walls? I think it's a really good point that for for your job, you can't just go to the local craft store and purchase something and hang it on the wall. You have to be so much more thoughtful. And I would encourage everybody to be more thoughtful, to think about different things as art. So what are some things that we should consider when we have these big blank walls and we're going to be decorating them? What should we be thinking about? We should always think about the scale of the artwork. We should think about framing because, you know, of course, framing can take a small piece and make it extra special and enlarge it with a mat and a frame. You should really consider the art that you already own. You know, maybe you want to keep going with a collection of things that you have, you know, a nautical look in in a beach house So consider things that you already own, and there really are alternatives to owning expensive, original art pieces. There's the term giclee, G-I-C-L-E-E, which is an alternative way to owning original art. As a matter of fact, I know people who own some major pieces of art, and they don't hang those in their homes. They've had giclees made of them, which is basically a very, very good computerized copy. Why do people choose to do that, Beth? Why, why, not, why not hang the original? Well, at that level, it's not wanting anything to happen to the safety of the real art. There are classics that are seen in movies and recreated with this giclee process. And sometimes I have been in a situation where I've wanted to buy original art from an artist and clear it, and they haven't wanted to give up their original piece. You know, maybe they show often in galleries or in group shows. So I've simply paid for them to make a giclee of the painting that I've wanted. Sometimes I go actually further, and I have that giclee overpainted. So here we've got our piece that's been printed 
from a computer on canvas and I have the artist go back in and lay in another level by painting over that. Wow, that's fascinating. I do spend a lot of time creating art for different characters. Not only looking for art, but thinking about themed art for different characters and having it created for the set. So you must have a lot of artists that think to contact you as like a way to say like, hey, I have this art and I would love for it to be seen on television or in a movie. Is that a method that you also acquire art? I do hear from a lot of different artists. At times in the past, when I've had to do, let's say, a gallery show, a full-on gallery show as a set, I've reached out to artists in particular. Sometimes when I'm working with a certain actor or producer, they refer me to different artists that are in their collection. So it's kind of a daily process I have of looking for things and people reaching out to me. In prop houses especially, a section that they're constantly building up is new art. As set decorators, we get kind of an email blast of new items in different prop houses. And mostly we get these blasts about new pieces of art because you can get away with a lot, especially in television, when you're looking at smaller angled shots. It mostly comes down to the artwork. I appreciated at the beginning of this little section how you were talking about considering, you know, this idea of having maybe some sort of theme or some idea of sameness but we all want to avoid that real matchy matchy look, especially in use the example of like a beach house where you have like nautical art, but there's a right way to do that and like a very, very wrong way to do that. Can you help us like understand how can you be within a theme and then not have that really cookie cutter matchy matchy look? To me, the best way that you can be in a theme and the best way that you can collect anything is to not rely on one source. So, you know, if you're going into a certain big box store and you find a piece of nautical art that you do like, that works within your space, works within your palette, and you have that, the next place that I would look is in a more eclectic, antique thrift store or online craft kind of inspired piece. So. You're, you're keeping always the theme around or even the, the palette the same. But if you expand where you're shopping and where you're finding things and then you bring the pieces together, it really gives you the look that you've gone after, but it stops you from recreating like we've talked about that suite of furniture. Yeah almost accidentally by going to various places, you get the variation in each piece, right? Yeah. If you're searching out your theme, just really expand your horizons in terms of where you're looking. And you would be surprised because, you know, sometimes even like, for instance, with the theme of nautical, it's so wide ranged. There's more masculine, there's more feminine, there's more modern, there's more traditional. Instead of going all the way with one of those kinds of looks, if you pick one from each column, that's what I suggest, yeah. you know? 
Yeah, that makes sense because you're like within theme, but you're you're basically doing like little touches from all different points. Exactly. Of- you're you're letting your theme be served by many masters, you know, master artists or shopping options. Okay, so now I have my pieces of art and I'm I've brought them home and I'm ready to do something with them. I'm always a little bit wary about framing and exactly how to go about hanging everything. So what can you do to tell me about how am I going to start off with those those first pieces and dealing with how to frame them properly? As I've recommended to people in the past, to me, this is a place to spend money. You can get a really inexpensive piece of art and turn it into a masterpiece with good framing. You can get a certain size piece of art and expand it with good framing. One of my vendors that I value, like my florist, is my framer because there is truly an art to framing. Here is where I really recommend people seek out help of an expert. There are so many options. There are so many price points. I think the best thing to do is to, if you can, go to the store, go to the framer with the piece have a conversation, tell your framer where the piece is going to be hung. Is this part of a collage wall? Is this for a hallway? You have to think about the perspective that you're going to get on the piece of art, which means that you have to think about where in your home or your apartment you're standing when you're looking at the art. So are you sitting even in an office across from your doctor or your lawyer and they have their diplomas and their awards framed behind them. You have a certain perspective. If you're standing in a small hallway, you're not gonna be able to get back far enough to see a lot of art, and you're certainly gonna be compromised if you frame that art with a very thick, deep frame. Okay. So for instance, in a small hallway, Sometimes I've used a collection of mirrors or a collection of something like family portraits or family photos, because you don't need to get that much of a perspective looking back onto the entire collection. You are visually informed quickly what that collection is, you know, and then you can stop and take a look at one or another photo. So you have to really think about where the piece is being seen from. Okay, so that so that's going to be like one of my first questions when I'm thinking about how to frame it or doing my matting. I'm thinking about where exactly is this being hung and what is it going to be hung next to and even in proportion to the size of the wall? Yes, exactly. You know, the same way that you pick out a TV these days, how much perspective do you get off the TV? How large is it going to be? You have to think about how much wall space you have. If you're, if you're hanging something between, let's say, two windows and you've got a sofa in front of those two windows, does that space call out for a vertical or a horizontal piece? You want to balance things. So maybe you want to have the same amount of wall space left and right of that because now you're looking at that sofa and you're looking at those two windows and you're looking at that piece of art in between as a whole. Mm. And that's where you have to really start to think about walking back, having someone help you hold up the artwork and gaining perspective. 
you'll notice when art is hung well, it has that same, we call it, or I refer to it as, you know, give it some air, let it breathe. Very often, the way that I choose to hang art is to hang a piece so it has the same relative similarity of amount of wall and amount of art. And that's when you're looking at a room, you don't want one piece to stick out so much because it throws off everything else in the room. So I know that in that case that that if I have a smaller piece, but I would really like to highlight it on a larger wall, is that where I'm going to use my matting to try to kind of work on the, the proportions of that size? You can definitely do that. It's very easy with certain mats to turn a piece, in, you know, that might be a- appearing as a, as a small little postage stamp into more of a substantial piece. There are even double mats to be had. There are color mats. There are mats that are linen or silk. That All of these sassy, things. sassy, Beth. Oh, Lord, yeah. silk mats? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Silk mats are expensive, but sometimes you just got to go for it. <laughs> it's you just worth gotta, it. Just got to do it. It like speaks um, to me. I love that. Yeah. They're impressive. I mean, matting like, seems uh, very personal. Like it just depends on personal. your style, right? You know, just like you know how I love good silk drape, I am a sucker for a nice, beautiful linen or silk mat. I mean, it weeds powerhouse, it weeds upscale. In the same way, there are pieces that I never think about matting. Um, Posters that won't feel like a poster anymore. Sometimes there are pieces that, both for the director of photography, who mostly hates glass, so I frame things without glass, but also there are certain pieces that don't need to have glass on them. They're more casual you know, maybe they're made on poster board or something that already feels like it has a strength and a depth to it, you know, so we just frame it to the edge. So look, there, there's that level of matting and framing. There are also stores where you can easily buy a frame that has a mat already cut out for it. In all of these scenarios, the tool that you need is a tape measure. You need another person's hands hopefully to help you get perspective and they hold a piece up and look and you hold the piece up and they look and you need a tape measure the good news is that the world of framing yes you can get custom made frames but there are standard sizes eight and a half by 11 11 by 14 12 by 18 24 by 36 For instance, when I need to turn something around quickly, I have it made by our graphic artist on a show in a standard size. So I know that I can walk in and buy a frame for it. So you can educate yourself on standard sizes of frames. It will help. Then you have to think about balancing both frame color and the tone of the piece of art. You know, nowadays, there's a lot of photography available being printed on shiny surfaces. Uh, It almost looks like it's being printed on glass. If you wanted to hang one of those or multiple ones of those, 
again, you have to think about balance. You know, it could end up looking like a room of mirrors, which you don't want. Okay, so given all these tips, is there sort of like a way that you can help us think of them that maybe people use more every day that that they can sort of understand like how do I normally make these choices in the same way where I'm thinking about like colors and I'm thinking about how it fits in a certain way? I do have a good tip for that, Caroline. Oh, yeah? What? (laughs) Frames and matting are like eyeglasses. They're like our new world of wearing masks. You know, you think about the size and shape of your face. You think about the color of your eyes more. You think about comfort and durability. And that's what a good mat and frame becomes to a piece of art. It really enhances it. Um, When you go into a professional framer, they have a way of holding the piece down that you're framing if you've had it rolled up. You know, they put these little bean bags down on it. And then we try four different mats and frames, one on each corner. Sometimes there are frames that look exactly like what I'm framing. You know, there could be, say, a swirl pattern in the artwork and a swirl pattern in the frame. There will be times when that works so well. It replicates it, but doesn't overpower it. And then there are times where it completely detracts from the image. And the more you practice this and the more that you look at it, the more you see how things start to get pulled together, just like when you try on eyeglass after eyeglass, you know, you say, bingo, this is the one. Yeah, it does seem to come together right away where you're like, yeah, this just suits me. I can just tell. Exactly. And other people see it right away, too. You know, this feels like such a hard decision to make. But the fun part of it, and really for a layman, it it actually becomes easy because you'll be in a situation where it just pops into place. I've experienced that. So recently, my middle kiddo picked out purple eyeglass frames. And on the table, I was like, no, please, no. But when she put them on, myself and the and the uh, eyeglass picker-outer helper was like, right. damn, they just suit her. Like, they just look so right on her face mm-hmm. that it was like, you know, kid, I can't, I cannot deny you this. So I appreciate the idea of like trying it out, practicing with the different corner pieces, you know, take your art with you, like you said, and look at different frames with the piece with you. That makes so much more sense, like you would actually try on different eyeglasses. Yeah. And, you know, if you're just shopping for frames online, print a picture of the artwork and print a picture of the frame. You could even literally cut out the frame and try it. But when you have the two things of relatively equal size next to each other, your eye will help you decide. And I'll help you decide. You know, if you want to send me pictures, by all means, I am adept at picking out a frame by a photograph. I do that a lot lately. Okay, so once we have our our piece framed and matted and we're ready to go hang it, I feel like there is a ton of times when I am in someone's home and I feel like, why is this piece of art practically over my head? Like, why is it hung so high? So what is about the right height for hanging art? And is there a standard height? Oh, Caroline, now we are approaching my biggest pet peeve on set. Hanging art. Hanging art is 
an art. It is seriously an art. I mean, in all practical reality, the right height ranges between 57 and 60 inches from the floor. But one must take into consideration the height of the person hanging the art because we always tend to hang it at our height's eye level as well as the height of the ceiling. Mm. Uh, you know, properly hung art can really speak to the scale of the room. So it has to be proportional. I feel this so hard. My my dad is 6'2", and every piece of art in the entire house is like the bottom of the frame is over my head. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's so weird. That's why there has to be middle ground. Look, everybody's always going to have a taller person and a shorter person either living in their home or visiting their home. So it's like we really have to go neutral here and stick to a plan. When you have higher ceilings, you do need to tend to hang your art higher. Otherwise, what happens in a strange way is that visually it dwarfs the room. So you walk into this open cavernous space that has high ceilings and everything is at a short level so there's blankness above you and it doesn't make the room look bigger. It makes it look like it's been cut in half. So everything above you in the short level is filled with visual stimulation and everything above that is blank. So you've got to look at the room, look at the wall, really think about this 57 inch to 60 inch from the floor being an optimal height. Now that's for, let's say, a first piece. You know, if you have room on a wall and you want to put a piece below it and a piece above it on a beam or something, you know, where let's say three small vertical pieces fit, that's a way to do it. If you're hanging more than one piece, you really need to keep the same space in, in between. And that requires a little bit of effort. You know, there are professional hangers that you can call and they do this for a living and you just tell them where you want the piece and then they're aware of these protocols. I do find that grouping pieces of art is, is like you said, an art unto itself because there are people who do it so well, especially when they do it with like some non-traditional art, like maybe they have like a plate or they have, you know, a piece of framed doily type thing, little lacy um, items that are like all different frames. And then you have like a big piece of uh, maybe a picture and then you have like a piece of art. And it's like some people do such a terrific job grouping them together and making those make sense. I am so intimidated by that. How do you even begin to approach kind of mixing things together or grouping things? Collage walls take a lot of effort. The best thing to do is to lay everything out and do that changing and that looking before you put the hammer and the nails in your hand. So take your bed or a section of the floor and just work with the pieces that you have that you want to include on the collage wall and always start from the middle and work out. The big thing to concern yourself with again and to measure as you go is let's say that you've decided you want a four inch section of wall in between everything that you're hanging. 
you could cut out a four inch section of cardboard to help you move that space around, you know, before you add the second piece or the third piece or the fourth piece. So you're seeing again, visually where the next piece should go. It is a project that is very hard for one person to do. Okay. Because you need someone to help you and get perspective on it. And you should take that advice seriously and to heart from the person who is known as the human level. You're the human level? I am known as the human level. Once Mr. Peanut, now <laughs> I am known. I Really, uh, I... I I do have that ability. I can tell you when something is a milliliter off. In the union, set dressers are taught to constantly use a tape measure and this process of hanging art. They'll fight me all the way, but when they go back and take the tape measure out, because what you must realize is that no place is perfectly level, no home, no new construction. So here you are in a situation where you know, a section of the floor may be off. If you're measuring from the floor up, a section of the ceiling may be off. One wall may not be plumb or perfectly aligned with the wall on the other side of the door. And you have to adjust for these things when you're hanging art. So a lot of times it's actually best to kind of just use your eye in terms of, you know, the fact that things aren't exact in most homes, really in any home, right? In any home, And it is better that you use your eye. To some people, it can be an extremely frustrating job, something they don't want to tackle. And to others, it can be a really amazing creative challenge. Okay, so say we have our grouping or we have our our different pieces of art, and now we're trying to decide exactly where to hang them. I know that most of us go directly to that large, huge blank wall, but I know there's a lot of other opportunities to hang art. There are other places that I use art often. I'm a big fan of easels, little tabletop easels, where I put small pieces or frame little paintings that your kids have done. You know, there's a great place to buy an elaborate frame, you know, something a little over the top and frame children's artwork in and put on an easel. It just creates one of those moments that we hold dearly, you know, just something that you look at that you have such fondness for. I have one of those pieces from my daughter that I actually have hanging in my bookshelf. Once the books go in the bookshelf, or even if you don't fill every shelf, like in Alicia Florek's famous bookcases in her apartment, I actually started with a beautiful little oil painting and I built up the books and everything around it. So is it okay to layer a little bit like when you have a piece of art in the back of a bookcase? Oh, it's a great thing to do. Great thing to layer. You can use carvings or needlepoints. You know, a lot of mementos can become art simply by being framed in a shadow box. Jewelry, etchings, you know, little things that you want to preserve and that you hold closely and dear to you. They can be framed in a shadow box on a mat of beautiful silk. That makes for a really fantastic way to capture a meaningful piece of art. 
you know, they can sit on a pile of books in a bookshelf. They can be on an easel, smaller framed photos sitting together on I use them all the time as dressing in a bookshelf, dressing on a piano top, a desktop. Those are little moments that create character and will always show the character that you are living in your own home. I feel like that's such a better way to honor those memories too, rather than shoving them back in a drawer or in a box in your closet. It is, and you can't do it with all of them. Right? We all have so many photos and kids' artwork and things that we're keeping track of, and you can't put all of them out, but this is a place to really have a special moment. You know, maybe you got a baby gift of a beautiful sterling silver frame. I have a shelf of photos in silver frames that I've collected over the years. Some of them are at that level, beautiful sterling silver. And some of them are just from a junk shop. I think just about wanting to tell the story of what are meaningful things to you and what you like to look at all the time. You know, there's a soothing quality now that we're all in our homes constantly. (laughs) Um, There's a soothing quality to setting those pieces and just enjoying them. There are also, at these times other really great practical things that can help you that we end up using well hanging on the wall, like chalkboards, like bulletin boards. I have a big oversized paper calendar when I walk in. It doesn't even have a frame on it, but it's hanging in a spot that I need it to be hanging in to remind me of things and keep my month focused. (laughs) Uh, But again, you know, think of other things that are important to you and just that you like to look at. So I know a lot of people tend to put up family photos as like that thing that they either like to look at or as a way to tell their story. And tons of people do it going up the staircase. Now, is that cliche? Is that old fashioned? Should we be doing it in a different way these days? I'd say... Yeah, it's a little cliche. It's sort of done on every sitcom. I haven't worked on sitcoms myself, but it's it's definitely around and thought of in a certain way. I like to take a wall in someone's home that maybe doesn't even... It, hey, Carolyn, this might sound crazy, but it doesn't even look like a wall. You I want to hear just, crazy, Beth. I'm here <laughs> for the crazy. It's just like a little section that might transition you from one room to the next or, you know, it's just a little beam or a mini wall. Let's call it a mini wall. Some place where you wouldn't even think of hanging something. That's what I like to turn into some unusual focus. So that's that's a place where I like to step out of the norm. Again, you know, we've, we're pulling the sofa and the furniture off the walls and we're looking at things at different angles. Inevitably, in certain rooms, even like on the side of a closet door, you know, there has to be that small little wall or return to get you to the next part of the wall. Well, I like to take that wall, if there is enough space around it, to, say, feature a collection of small items. I've done that before with a collection of hamsas. 
those come in a very certain shape, almost like a diamond. Okay. And when I started with them high on the wall and came down, I ended up mimicking that shape of them mm. with the hanging of all of the collection. You don't really see it at first. It's like double entendre. You know, it's, it's a layer on a layer. But again, when you get perspective and you get back on it, you see, wow, that whole wall is hung like the shape of the piece. You know, if the people have a collection of crosses, they could do it that way. Again, think of not only the piece that you're working with, but the final product, how the wall stands on its own. Because when you hang collections, people's eyes and consciousness tend to go to, oh, what a beautiful collection. Not, oh, I love that exact one the most. It's so much more impactful when you see 20 crosses on a wall as opposed to taking them and just putting them all over the whole house, which a lot of people do with collections. They put like, you know, an elephant in every single room. And it's like, well, if you put it all in one spot and you kind of make it like this is like a nice highlighted section of a collection, it feels more special. Gather the elephants. Gather (laughs) all the elephants (laughs) and put them together. It works better. It makes it seem like you mean it. It tells a different story. It is a more sophisticated way to say, this is who my character is. This is what I'm drawn to. This is what I collect. This tells a more complete, non-fragmented story. In that same way that you can highlight by using the negative space of an area, by leaving purposefully, like you said, a more diamond shape when you were hanging up the diamond-shaped collection, then you could also use paint, right, to create like a highlight wall? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I just saw a triptych, which is a group of three pieces of art, hung. They were all similar, not the same, but similar. But the background of them was a beautiful color blue of which they decided to paint the wall the same color. And of the whole room, that was the only place where you saw that smoky blue color. And it picked up on all of the pieces beautifully. And again, it made a statement wall, just like you might do that behind your bed in a bedroom, pick that dark color, and then maybe put two pieces of art that pick up that color as a pair over each end table or one piece horizontally over the headboard. But if you're thinking about this negative space and what happens is it pushes the view even more because if the whole wall is painted a color that keeps repeating within the artwork that you're hanging, your eye goes broad to the whole entire wall. It's almost like you're making the whole wall the piece of art. Nice. That's a good way to think of it. So it's almost like your wall becomes your matting or your extra frame. Exactly. Exactly. You just keep expanding and expanding on the theme and on the visual and it's statement making. 
So Beth, I know there's always exceptions to the rule, and especially in art, I feel like there's a little bit more um, leeway, I guess, in the way we handle things. So from the beginning of this episode, we've told everyone, hang your art last. Make it be the last thing that you consider in a room. Is there ever a scenario in which art is really your first thing that you want to consider? I'd say the one time that art is considered first is if you have a piece that's so meaningful to you, of which... I've certainly seen in the past where literally rooms have been built for a collector's piece of art or pieces of art in the way that you sit and think about in your apartment or your home, where the TV is going to go, where are you naturally focused to continue to look? That's a place where you decide first. And I wouldn't hang the piece there first, but I would label it that's going to go on that wall. Otherwise, for me, when I'm dressing a set, I keep the art relegated even off the set. I don't even bring it onto the set until my floor plan is complete, my placement of lighting is complete. What I don't do really is put that many top layer small pieces of dressing in The next place I go to is art because sometimes I end up putting a piece of art, let's say, over a chest and that piece of furniture is going to have a lamp on it. You know, whereas most people think the art has to be seen in its entirety. The one thing that I can tell you that happens naturally and looks appropriate is, you know, if you've got a grouping of art hanging over a chest and sometimes the lamp or the lampshade hides a little bit of it, don't be concerned about that. It's just adding another layer of life to the story that you're telling in that one particular moment. And when you start to put art in, it creates those visual moments. And when those visual moments start to happen, you know, by accident or by subconsciousness they really take over the look and feel of your space and they make it cohesive i i feel like everything that you're saying makes me feel like living with art is really what we want everyone to do as opposed to just hanging it on their wall we want there to be a connection between what's around you and how you feel about it these days it is so important to Surround yourself with visual happiness. Make your way through by giving yourself that sense of having this beauty in front of your eyes and featuring what makes you happy. I feel like many people surround themselves in telling their own story with their art. And it's interesting about how during this time, different art is is coming alive in different ways from exactly this this very unique time that we're living in. Have you seen any artists or art out there that that have really struck a chord with you and made you feel like they're really understanding and capturing this time that we're living in? I, I have recently, Caroline. These times are influencing artists everywhere. And I came across a photographer and a photography exhibit called Masked NYC. It's a witness to our time. The photos are by an amazing photographer, A.J. Stetson. And he's done by now, I believe, 800 portraits of masked faces. 
They are so vibrant and tell so much. You can just, I mean, never before has the quote, the eyes are the window to the soul been more apparent than in his work. And they stand on their own beautifully, each individual photograph. And together they make a intense statement about where we are in this world. He's a New Yorker and they are just spectacular. He blows them up and the last show that he had, they were actually hanging on a beautiful iron fence surrounding a building in lower Manhattan. And they're traveling around now to different galleries and, you know, being seen outside, which is great. And they are incredibly striking. And I think they're the kind of artwork that we're going to be seeing now, you know, more and more, whether it's cartoonists or graphic artists or photographers or painters, you know, people are representing the times that we live in. And to see something that's so relevant and in a way difficult to look at, but so magnificently beautiful at the same time, really, really struck me. I recommend that people look for the exhibition Masked New York City, Witness to Our Time. The photographs are by A.J. Stetson. You can follow him on Instagram, A.J. Stetson, and you can see his website, ajstetson.com. Following the recording of this episode, we were so inspired by A.J. Stetson's exhibit. We tracked him down and managed to secure the following interview. We hope you enjoy. Joining us today on this episode of Decorating the Set is artist and photographer A.J. Stetson. Hey, A.J. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Beth. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Super excited to have you today. We have talked probably, gosh, Beth, for like half an hour about AJ's work. And we were so excited to get an opportunity to actually talk to the man himself and get to know more about your art. This was something that I really want to bring to everybody across the world because the project that AJ continues to work on is very relevant in these times and really just a spectacular piece of art. You have to know when you strike Beth, who is a born and bred Manhattanite, and just she just like backs up on her feet. You got to know that you really struck a chord with her. So that's huge. Thank you. I'm honored. Tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us where are you coming from? I know you're a dual citizenship gentleman. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Just last year, after a nine year process of investigating my family's history, I became an Italian citizen. My great great grandfather came over from a tiny little town between Rome and Naples called Capriati Avolturno in the Caserta district. My great grandmother's father, Pietro Parillo, looked out over the ocean and said, I'm going to call my first daughter, Gemma, the gem of the ocean. And so they came over. I did not know my great-great-grandfather, but I did know my great-grandmother, Gemma. So I I go by A.J. Stetson, uh, my maternal surname. My paternal surname, Parillo, or Parillo, is the side of the family that came from Italy. So we played tic-tac-toe and she let me win every time and she would regularly uh, (laughs) curse like a Neapolitan sailor. So I learned a little bit of Italian from her that way. Yeah, I grew up in Rhode Island, went to Williams College and then moved to New York City uh, initially to be a dancer. Um, I got scholarships to the Martha Graham Dance School and the Joffrey Ballet. 
a multi-talented artist. I love that your grandmother was a swearing sailor kind of lady. I think she hung out with <laughs> Beth and I very, very well. That would make her the perfect woman to work in the film business. <laughs> very much so. Yes, she had lots of chutzpah, stamina, and, <laughs> um, and also honor, integrity, uh, decency. Learned a lot from her. I think there are some photos somewhere of me as an infant and baby having my diaper changed. She owned a bakery. Uh, so in the bakery, I hope none of the, <laughs> the customers of the bakery had to deal with my stinky diaper. But I feel honored to be able to have lived through my teenage years knowing my great-grandmother. Uh, yes, yeah, so I moved to, to New York to study dance. I became injured. One particular grand jeté was fantastic, got great height, and then landed from that, fractured my fourth lumbar vertebra, and was out for a few weeks, flat out on muscle relaxers, painkillers, but came back, became a fitness trainer, and I'm a classical singer. I was traveling as an opera singer for a while, but now I sing at a local church on Broadway and 10th Street, Grace Church, and I've been photographing since I was a kid, but it wasn't until about four years ago that I looked at that M button on the dial on my DSLR and decided to investigate what manual mode was. And doing that has opened up this most exquisite world of imagery, both stills and video short films. And in the past few years, it has kindled in me a passion for seeking out the radiance of people as well as underwater creatures, sea lions, whale sharks, dolphins. I've become a, an FAA drone pilot to be able to capture, hopefully, out-of-the-ordinary imagery. But I guess I continue to be drawn back to portraits of people. Have you taken any formal training in photography, or is you're all self-taught? Yeah, it was self-taught, reading, looking at tutorials, purchasing some tutorials from certain online schools where I had found through various means, uh, the Aperture Foundation seminars with Albert Watson, uh, Mark Seliger, and just diving into it myself. I mean, it, it was a bit of a, I don't know if the Pandora's box metaphor works because it wasn't so much chaos that was unleashed, but rather just this exquisite, infinite possibility of, of beauty. As a dancer, I, I do miss that, but I have worked with many ballet dancers, modern dancers, Cirque du Soleil performers, and so have kind of maybe harnessed that passion for movement and athleticism, as well as imagery, to capture these these people, these bodies in motion, and hopefully out of the ordinary, even extraordinary uh, places, locations, to create environmental portraits and short films of them in ways that might make people's eyes open a bit wider. We definitely have some similar history. Going back to both Mark Seliger and Albert Watson, I actually started many, many years ago doing commercials with them. Oh, cool. As Caroline said, for something to be relatable to me visually and just strike me the way that this whole project has masked New York City, I think it will be so relatable to people, even if they're not in New York, no matter what their concepts are or their politics or their thoughts about how we're living today. It's just such an immediate visual connection that you're creating in these portraits. So tell us a little bit more about how the project started. On March 8th, I was singing at Grace Church. And two days later, I started feeling achy and feverish. And um, I, I live in a cooperative community with, at the time, about 20, 21 people having been preparing for 
what might happen since we we were increasingly aware of COVID-19. I, I got some water. I think I took in, you know, two apples up to my studio, my bedroom, and I quarantined myself. And for the next 25 days, I was I was really sick. It wasn't just fever, flu symptoms. It morphed into respiratory difficulties, particularly on inhaling. Breathing in was like trying to inhale through a, a wet woolen blanket and gastrointestinal issues. And um, yeah, about nine days into that, after calling daily to the city, I was able to get a, a test on March 19th, which three days later came back positive for COVID-19. I was in solitary isolation quarantine for 25 days. My housemates were so supportive, bringing me food and water. I mean, I didn't see anyone except for the one trip to Bellevue Hospital where I was masked and covered. And I saw Dr. Kianko through a, a plexiglass and, uh, and then came right back and basically was in this single room with the exception of as I started to feel a little bit better in the weeks following that, uh, climbing up the old cast iron fire escape, <laughs> feeling a bit like Spider-Man to the roof <laughs> where I would do some on some nice days in late March and early April, a bit of exercise on the rooftop. But yeah, I, I felt so helpless, so um, almost paralyzed by being stuck inside with this illness that I, I felt this, this need, this compulsion to create something upon coming out and feeling much better. So I asked my housemates if I might photograph the mast, since portraits were something that in the past few years I developed a passion for. I'm ever humbled by the art of it. There, there are so many aspects that every time I pick up a camera, still today, as I was photographing people for the mast project, I was learning new aspects of composition and lighting. How many portraits have you done? How many people have you photographed now? I believe I'm at about 890 something. That's remarkable. Yeah, as of today. And uh, mostly because you, you are just seeing people out in New York and getting their permission to be photographed? Yes, yes. Always asking permission. And if they say yes, or if they inquire more about what the project is, I'll pull up on my phone to be able to show them some images that I have captured thus far. And then wherever we happen to be, Brooklyn, East New York, Harlem, Union Square, Washington Square Park. You know, that's, that's another aspect, I think, of these photos is that they're so striking because they're so in the moment. You can just see that nothing was prepared in a way by your subject. They were just out in their day and this opportunity came their way. They have no anticipation that appears to be, you know, nerves. It's just such a natural capturing of who they are. Huh. I, I just strove to be engaging of the person in the moment. Uh, definitely no hair and makeup, no, no preparation except for a moment of engaging. Hi, I'm AJ. Uh, may I photograph you? Back in the spring, I'd say the positive response rate was probably around 75, 80%. And when someone would decline, most often they would say, but thank you for asking. Um, so I, it started out with housemates and then some friends who were in the outer boroughs or uptown. And then when I started bicycling around the city, prior to COVID, I hadn't, and I've lived in New York since 1995, I hadn't bicycled, having known several athletic friends who had bad accidents. But given the kind of lower congestion level of traffic in the city, I decided, you know, what, this is, and with gyms closed, I'm 
pretty active. As I also work as a fitness trainer. I knew I needed to get some kind of activity, some exercise, and so bicycling became it. I took my mirrorless camera and my 135 millimeter f1.8 prime lens, essentially on every trip. Often, if there were people by the East River or the Hudson River who were photographing each other with their iPhones, I might stop and say, "Would you like me to take your photo, and or may I photograph you?" And then uh, on May 25th, when George Floyd was murdered, and the rallies and protests began at an increasing pace, I began engaging with that. There was a five or six week period when I attended those rallies and marches around the city, like my life depended on it. Uh, and I, I had no idea at the time that that anything would become of the mask portraits. I just knew that having been really sick and having felt so helpless, I, I needed to engage in this time in some way to be creative. And, and this happened to be my response to that. Well, you certainly turned the whole experience around into something that it's unbelievable, even in the poster that you've created, it's a whole new way of seeing so many portraits together. It creates a pattern. It's hard to translate this over a podcast. So I encourage everybody to take a look at the work. All of them together, you know, has a certain strength. And then of course, as individuals, they're just remarkable. Thank you, Beth. This is such an intimate project. Clearly, AJ, that you know you have your own story and you've been so generous to share that with us. You must have heard many of other people's stories as you were doing the portraits. Was there any that stood out to you that you'd be willing to share with us? Yes, Caroline and Beth, this has <laughs> impressed on me even more my yearning to discover others' stories, how essential these, these narratives are. And while I didn't get an opportunity to, to speak with everyone at length, I always made sure to ask for permission prior to photographing them. And in many cases, I have gotten to know these people through the course of the exhibition. And in some cases, we're starting to develop friendships from these. Beth, I recently sent you on Instagram an image of a woman that I photographed a few weeks ago. Yes. So throughout the month of the exhibition, I set up two times, Sundays and Mondays at 5 p.m. for anyone who would like to come by to be photographed masked. And I had a little wagon that I used to have the banners that I installed at sunrise and then took them down at sunset. And I had some signs, have your portrait made free. About two weeks ago, I was photographing some people and peripherally, I saw a woman come by and she was holding several large bags. It looked like she was maybe having a a rough day. She placed them down and she patiently waited. And then when I was finished photographing the person that I was with, I turned to her and she put her hand, which had been over her, her breastbone, she put, put her hand up and said, me next? And I said, yes. And I said, I'm AJ. And she said, I'm Lily. I'm homeless. And I said, hi, Lily. May I photograph you? And she said, yes. Um, she had this, this bright enthusiasm of a schoolgirl. And so I photographed her. In, in the past five months, with the hundreds of people that I've been photographing for this, I don't know that anyone has been so calmly present, unblinking, as I photographed her. And toward the end of uh, me photographing her, her eyes started to, to tear up. And I put my camera down and I said, thank you, Lily. And she said, thank you for making me feel like a person. 
and uh, it was hard to to keep it together. Um, I thanked her, and I have since printed up some five by seven prints and have them on me in my backpack, so that hopefully when I see her, I'll be able to to give them to her. That's amazing. It's just an, another layer of how the work has touched people and you as the artist really comes through the connection i don't know that i i knew how captivated i was by this art of portraiture before in in that the more i learn about an individual the more i i want to learn and to be able to to discover what trajectories through life they have experienced to bring them to this moment this moment when we have sometimes just eight to twelve seconds together so typically, AJ, when you're taking portraits, of course, a traditional portrait would be of a person's entire face, maybe even their entire body. Do you feel like you're able to capture an individual's essence when you're just looking at their eyes? I wouldn't have guessed prior to COVID. And now engaging with them just via our eyes is something that I, I, I cherish. And I do feel that while we may not always be able to tell precisely what kind of smile is going on, I do feel that there's there's so much soulfulness and spirit that can be shared, exchanged, communicated through just the eyes. And depending on the circumstances, I may ask to someone, um, if you feel comfortable closing your eyes for a moment, taking a breath, and recalling some experiences since the pandemic began, whether it's frustration or sadness, or possibly some silver linings or moments that surprised you. I I strive not to guide someone specifically to an experience or an emotion, but allow for an opportunity if there's time for that. Uh, And I sense from the person that they have uh, maybe more than just a few moments. Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll engage with them, try to communicate with them. But you're right, there's so much that is occluded by the fact of most of our face and the muscles which can convey so much expression are hidden from each other. But it's become clearer to me that, that there is indeed quite a bit that is, is revealed and shared just through the eyes. I was so fascinated by how many different types of masks people wore in that poster, looking at everything and how much people were able to really show their personality and their culture and their message through their masks. I feel like I've seen a variety locally but not that you know, huge array of choices that people made. It was really beautiful and it actually kind of made me feel like on one hand, masks are certainly something we all don't want to wear. The way that people have embraced them and made them part of their personalities was really beautiful. I agree completely, Carolyn. It's almost like everyone is choosing their own way of decor, you know, their palette and the textile, you know, how it fits their hair color and what they're wearing. And it's really a specific choice. They all seem to really own their choice to be seen this way. The creativity on display has been so extraordinary. One of my favorite experiences since moving to New York is the Halloween parade on 6th Avenue. I don't want to directly create an equivalence or even a metaphor here to Halloween, but the creative expression that's on display there in that one evening per year, now that many of us are wearing masks regularly, the opportunity to have this aesthetic expression, yeah, it's there's been such boundless creativity that I've been astounded by. And in fact, when I'm out and about, whether it's 
just bicycling or walking down the street or at a rally. I will keep my eye open for those individuals who have masks that that stand out from a block or several blocks away. There was a young black woman with short hair who had a beautiful orange shawl and an orange mask. And in fact, she had colored her hair orange and she looked absolutely radiant, like a, a princess. I asked if I might photograph her. This was at Fifth Avenue and 40th Street. Curiously, I, I seem to remember the precise location of almost, yeah, of every portrait that I've, I've taken. And I'm very glad that she said yes and um, happened to have a light beige, almost like sandstone building behind her. Yeah, that was one of my favorite experiences. AJ, tell us where the exhibition is going now and what does the future hold for it? Because I can't imagine that it wouldn't want to be seen by everyone in New York. I think about building after building empty with plenty of places to display these incredible images. Thank you. Just this morning, I installed it with Sarah Cunningham, the curator of the art gallery at Pace University, right across from City Hall. And they have quite a few very large windows within which we put up to four or six of the four foot tall by two and a half foot wide portrait banners within. And it will be there until October 25th. And then it will be part of Art on the Ave NYC on Columbus Avenue. Oh, that's fantastic. Coming to my neighborhood. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. And then also the Fourth Universalist Society on Central Park West and 76th Street will mm-hmm. host it. I'm in conversation with them. They've confirmed it, and now we have to decide on specific dates. And then once it's COVID safe to have an indoor exhibition, the Urban Justice Center will host um, it as an exhibition. We're going to have all those details on the website for the podcast and absolutely will tell everybody and show some of the beautiful portraits on my BAK home decor Instagram. Tell us how we can reach you also. How I'm reachable, ajstetson.com or aj at ajstetson.com, ajstetson at gmail.com. Tell us more about the charity that you're donating the proceeds to. Colin Kopernik founded the Know Your Rights Camp COVID-19 Relief Fund to raise money for communities of color, black and brown communities that have been hit harder and hardest by the pandemic. I decided early on that that any profits from this would be donated to the Know Your Rights Camp. I felt, as I mentioned, helpless while being sick with this. And through the course of engaging with countless New Yorkers in rallies and marches, I'm a white man, I'm a gay man. I'm just beginning to understand the privilege that I'm afforded as a white man in this society, in this country, in this time. As a gay man who was bullied as a kid, I have a little bit of experience with being on the fringe but I, I want to utilize some of what I can to, to try to give back to and, and support, particularly in this time when we're finally engaged in long overdue reckoning with the racism that has been um, an awful part of our society for so long. Uh, and this has been my little response to... This project seems so unique to COVID-19, but at the same time, it seems like there's so many different ways you could continue this project. Where do you imagine this continuing on? It's already starting to morph into me engaging with individuals throughout the city. And while I do intend to capture over a thousand masked portraits, hopefully we won't have to continue wearing masks forever. And... um I've been finding how 
a, of a, a charge, a, a, an ebullient, joyous experience it is to engage with individuals. In fact, possibly over the past five months, I've met more people than in the past five years or longer. And, and I'm an extrovert, so I think that's saying something. <laughs> I was bicycling along the East River just, yeah, just a week ago. I saw two women. One was photographing the other. The woman that was being photographed looked utterly fabulous and uh, was wearing a short dress and had on high heels and her hair was just flowing and glowing. And her friend was photographing her with, with an iPhone and I asked if I might photograph them masked as well as take some individual portraits. And so over the next three minutes, I did and I framed it with the uh, 135 millimeter prime with the Manhattan Bridge in the background. Got a few shallow depth of field shots, sent them to them and they were overjoyed. I've, I've been surprised and thrilled by how many people actually unanimously have seemed to love the image and ask if they can post it to their Instagram accounts. And within hours or sometimes minutes, I see, oh, they've just tagged me and posted their, their mask. It, it really, it feels like when someone's masked, like you were just describing that, that photo shoot. And it seems so much like, you know, when you put on a mask on someone, you're taking away so much of that sort of contrived beauty, if you will, the, the the makeup or the certain hair or the whatever, when you put a mask on and you just have their eyes, there's that certain like almost innocence or simplicity that comes out that I think you capture so beautifully. Thank you. Thanks. I, re really, it's it's the individuals um, uh, offering to be present for me and, and vulnerable and uh, this particular time when we have, have to conceal so much of what is our outward facing identities. I'm grateful when, I, when anyone says yes to uh, to me photographing them because it's, it's an opportunity to engage uh, for a moment and to share with them and sometimes to give them a, a bit of joy when they see some, an image which makes their eyes open and they, uh, yeah, I, I'm, as a singer, to share a phrase, an aria, um, a, a piece of music, which some people might say touch them or moves them, uh, as a photographer, to strive to work with light and a moment with another human being in which they offer their, their presence and their engagement. They're vulnerable in that time. They don't know what is going to, to be captured, but I I'll always check in with them and share with them the image prior to doing anything with it. And in fact, in one case, someone asked me to delete their images. So I, I did, I irrevocably deleted them from all my storage and cloud storage and it's gone. More often they'll, um, they'll be excited by and express gratitude for. And I, that just, that is a, 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 such a joy for me to be able to share that. And, and a surprise that in this masked period that it seems to have uh, been so well received, but I'm, I'm grateful for that. AJ, I noticed from going back to work myself on set this past week, how we all approach each other some who have known each other and worked together for many, many years, now masked, is a very different experience on so many levels. So what you're capturing for people is remarkable. Well, I love to engage with the people that I've been communicating with on any level. And Beth, if I may, I would love to photograph you masked at some point. I would be completely honored. <laughs> Thank you. It'd be my honor. <laughs> Thank you so much, AJ, for talking with us today. We can't wait to see what you do next with Masked NYC. 
and with all of your future projects. Happy to bring this to everybody in our final podcast of the season. This has truly been a conversation about art. Thank you so much, Beth. Caroline, if you weren't in Houston, I would love to <laughs> photograph you. <laughs> I am so happy for Beth to be our, our representative of Pod Clubhouse. So <laughs> you go do it. I can't wait to see the photographs. We will absolutely share them with everyone. Thank you. That is a beautiful wrap up to our art episode. I'm so thankful that we got an opportunity to speak about this as we have been teasing our listeners for many episodes that we're going to get to the art portion Beth, I think this has been a super helpful episode, and I think it should make everyone stop and think about what they already have on their walls, what they want on their walls, and if they're telling the story that they currently want to be telling. Thank you so much, Caroline. This is something that we've been wanting to get to for a while, and we're going to keep going with specific set decoration concepts as we continue on decorating the set from Hollywood to your home. I cannot wait. Beth, we're wrapping up our season one, and this has been an amazing experience with you. I'm so looking forward to season two, where we're going to have more rooms, and I know you are going to reveal more behind-the-scenes action for us. Give us so many more tips and tricks. I cannot wait. Absolutely. Ready to go, Caroline. This has been incredible, and I'm so appreciative and looking forward to everybody's questions. More to come in season two. So remember, you guys, we have our Halloween video submission information on podclubhouse.com, as well as we want to see your spooky spaces. We know that everyone is going above and beyond this holiday season, trying to put up something a little bit more exciting since we're not all doing these big giant parties. And we want to see what you guys are making. So send them over to Beth at at B-A-K-H-O-M-E-D-E-C-O-R, Back Home Decor. We cannot wait to see everything from all of your different homes and send in your questions. Beth cannot wait to solve all of your problems. Yes, the human level is here for you. Right (laughs) by your side. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And don't forget to please rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Five stars, people. Five stars. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is a Pod Clubhouse original production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Pod Clubhouse.